Welcome to the Faith Lakeside Podcast. Each week you'll hear another great message that will help you know God and make Him known in your life. Join us each Sunday at 1045 a.m. and throughout the week in small groups to make the most of your learning experiences. Now, sit back, relax with a great cup of coffee and a notebook and enjoy this week's message. Today in the church calendar for many of us is Reformation Day. So happy Reformation Day. And today we're going to talk about why that is significant. And you might well ask, well, how come we're not doing Philippians today? It's because today is special. Because it's a holiday, we're going to take the time to try and understand some significant things that happened in church history that brought us to where we are today in our church life. And some of you might be wondering, who is that? And I will tell you that is a portrait of a monk whose name was Martin Luther. He was an Augustinian monk, which is why he has got that sweet haircut. And Reformation Day marks the day when he nailed to the door of the Wittenberg Church, or Wittenberg if you're, you know, English, not German, um, the Wittenberg Church, he nailed a, a list of 95 complaints or theses or di- disagreements or discussion items that he had regarding some things in the church of his day, and that kicked off what we call the Protestant Reformation. But first, we need to kind of go back a few years and understand the church, because when we talk about church, sometimes we get so caught up in buildings and denominations that we forget what church is supposed to be. And church, this word church, many of you will remember through all the various teachings we've had, the word church is actually the Greek word ekklesia, which means gathering. And those called out to gather together to do business. Um, actually, in, in the culture of Jesus' day, a church, an ekklesia, could be like a, a town meeting called together to do the business of the town. Well, we are the called out people who are gathering together to do the business of the kingdom of God. And the first time we see the word church used about those who will follow Jesus is here in Matthew chapter 16, verse 18. And this is what Jesus says after Peter professes him to be the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus says, you're right. And that only came from God. That's how you knew. And then he says this, and I also say to you, That you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. Now, there is a lot of discussion. If you have come from a Roman Catholic background, you know that at this moment is when Jesus gave the Apostle Peter the keys to the church. Um, There wasn't a building yet, but they already had keys made. And so it's it's a symbol of the authority of the church. And we don't think that that's what happened here particularly what we understand it to be though is that Peter and the other apostles who were following after Jesus they were given the authority to rule over the church to lead it in its beginning years and that this profession of faith is the 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 rock upon which the church would be built this truth that Jesus is the Christ the son of the living God is the the foundation of the church, and then the apostles would be building on that foundation, given the keys or authority of the church in order to establish it in the coming years. Now, the first day of church, the very first time the church met was on the day of Pentecost. And we see that in Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, where, the, uh, where Luke writes, when the day of Pentecost had arrived, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like that of a rushing or a violent rushing wind came from heaven and it filled the whole house where they were staying. They saw tongues like flames of fire that separated and rested on each one of them. Then they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in different tongues as the Spirit enabled them. And we find out they went out on the streets and they were sharing the gospel in all kinds of different languages People were hearing the good news of Jesus Christ presented with clarity in their home language. And that day, Peter preached a sermon and 3,000 people were baptized. That is a good day. Um, I've never had that kind of day. So maybe next week, invite a friend. We'll try and get there, right? I'll run the water. 
well, maybe not next week, but seriously invite a friend and uh, invite them to come and experience Jesus with us. But 3,000 people joined the church that day, and the church continued to grow and grow and grow. And we see in just a few years that it begins to spread out all over Europe and North Africa. And here is just a quick picture. The red dots are the churches that we know for sure of were established there in the first century. So the prominent churches of the first century, that 0 to 99 AD, okay, that first hundred years of the life of the church. Here's, though, how the church grows in the second century, in the 100s. We have the church just kind of expanding quickly, and and it's in new cities, new prominent cities. And that's how the church grew, is missionaries like the Apostle Paul and others like him. They'd go to a city, they'd find a place where people who were religious were meeting, and then they'd just start telling them about Jesus. And sometimes it was a synagogue, and sometimes it was where philosophers were meeting to to do their little pseudo-religion. But it was always missionaries going and sharing the good news of Jesus Christ. And the church grew, and it grew quick. By the 3rd century, the 200s, the church is all over Europe. It's all over Rome. It's all over um, uh, Asia there, and and, and down through Egypt, and and in Africa, and in North Africa. I mean, the church is all over the place by the 200s. But what has happened is, as the church grew very quickly... There, there were some things that unfolded a little bit more slowly. So the New Testament, the books that we have, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, and I'll just stop there, you know the rest of them, they were not all completed until A.D. 95. And, and that last one written was written by the Apostle John. We think it, it could have been both, both Revelation and the Gospel of John or some mixture of the two, but it's not until the late 90s that the bible as we know it is actually finished writing but it's not like bound up into a book that every new believer is given and they carry it under their arm and come to church uh, because books are expensive in fact you don't even have books yet they're called codices where they took and bound together handwritten uh texts and copies of copies of copies of the bible So what happens is the church instead is already beginning to utilize from its early stages the Old Testament and the apostles' writings to establish doctrine. So the Old Testament is what the Bible is for the Apostle Paul. When he talks in his letters about Scripture and he talks about referring back to prophecy and truth, he's always looking at the Old Testament. But then the Apostle Paul and Matthew and and the Apostle John and and, and Peter's writings. And these men, their writings become scripture over time, become recognized as inspired by God. But as this unfolds, uh, the church is kind of struggling with leadership issues as the the apostles begin to die out, right? And, And we see that a lot with movements. When the founders start to die, the movement changes. It it, it shifts, and, and sometimes movements die. But the church did not die because it was not a man-made thing. Instead, what happened is the students of the apostles, the ones that the apostles had taught, began to take over leadership positions. And slowly, in these cities that we saw on the map, what we, we see is that the students of the apostles begin to take leadership positions in these churches, in these cities, and they're, they're eventually, in many cities, called bishops. And, and so each of the major cities has a bishop, someone who is overseeing all of the fellowship in their area. And, and so they end up leading the church. They write based upon the teachings that had been handed down to them from the apostles. And then they start meeting together to make important decisions. And that's what we've got to do, right? We've got to have a committee meeting. And, uh, you know, we've got to have a team meeting. We've got to get together. Everybody needs to air their thoughts. We go back to scripture and then we end up with new ideas being put forth. And that's kind of how the early church worked. It was the Old Testament, it was bishops, and it was councils meeting together to make decisions about what was, what was doctrine, what was truth, what are we going to say the church stands for. Now, the New Testament, like I mentioned, was finished its writing by A.D. 95, but it's not until A.D. 397 that the church actually met together in a council and said, These are the books of the Bible that are official. 
all these others are good spiritual books, but these are the ones that we believe are scripture. And it's not that they sat down one day and changed something or just gathered together some books. Instead, they approved finally as scripture the letters from men like Paul and Peter and James and John that they had been using for years as inspired teaching. Now they recognize them as God's holy word. So what we need to understand as we're looking at the map is that by the time that the church is really getting going, the Roman Empire is kind of rising and falling. Constantine moves the capital of the Roman Empire from Rome to Constantinople. Uh, what Istanbul was once Constantinople. Um, yeah, so anyway, I messed it up already. It was, a, it was a bad joke that some of you maybe got because there's that song that I can't ever remember the words to, but you know, Istanbul is Constantinople. Okay. Um, <clears throat> so something happens as the church continues. And you won't, this is going to be hard for you to, to even fathom. Christians start to over and over and over again disagree with one another. Right? I know you're sitting there going, what? How is that even possible? That Christians, even though they said these are our scriptures and these are our teachings and this is what we believe and we trust in Jesus Christ alone and that, that, that there continued to be disagreements and especially as, as more bishops rose to prominence, there tended to be more disagreements and then over, over time, two major cities became prevalent their bishops had the most authority, the Bishop of Rome and the Bishop of Constantinople. And they used to have disagreements because in Rome, they spoke Latin and they liked certain teachers. And in Constantinople, they used Greek and they liked certain teachers. And so they disagreed all the time. Usually they ended up working it out. But finally, in 1054, the church experienced its first split. And the churches in the east followed the bishop of Constantinople and split off. And the churches in the west followed the bishop of Rome and split off. So you end up with the church that's based in Constantinople and the church that's based in Rome as being the two centers of Christian thought, both Leaders claiming preeminence. Now, if you've ever driven down the road and you've seen an Orthodox church, Greek Orthodox, Roman Orthodox, all the Orthodox churches come from the Eastern Church. They will trace their origins to this split in 1054. So those of you who are you know, Christian nerds and you like this stuff, you understand when you drive by, they have a long history of being separated from the Roman church. The Roman church kind of gets mixed in with the Roman empire, becomes the Holy Roman empire in ever expanding ways. And politics and religion are mixed. There's a little bit of Roman nationalism. And, um, and, and, and what ends up as the Roman bishop ends up being called the Pope. The Pope. The father of all the bishops. The leader of all the bishops. And so, over time, after 1054, these two churches continue to develop. 1054, these two churches continue to develop. And so, uh, what we end up with is we as Protestants, we're going to trace our roots back to which of these two halves, do you think? The Roman church, actually. And you might go, wait, what? Yeah, so we're not even to the part where we really protest yet. Instead, that comes in the 1500s. In the 1500s, the state of the Roman church was this scripture. When they looked at scripture, it was not as important to them as tradition. Tradition was the master over scripture. In other words, if you wanted to know what Scripture said, you looked back into what one of the earlier church teachers said it said, and that was authoritative. And especially if the Pope, the Bishop of Rome, had given an explanation for that Scripture, that was like super authoritative. And you might have pulled out your Bible and went, I don't think that's what it means. And you would have been told, are you the Pope? 
you don't get a say. And uh, so the uh, tradition, the, the Pope is the, 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 the Bishop of Rome. He is the ultimate interpreter of Scripture. And so Scripture has a subordinate role to both tradition and the words of the Pope. Grace. In the view of the church in the 1500s, the early 1500s, grace was just the, the initiating component of salvation. It was something that kind of got it kick-started. But you had to do things, participate in the sacraments, in order to be saved. To get a little bit more grace. To get enough grace to get you through your every day. So the sacraments were things like baptism and communion. And so there was this partaking of things in order to experience the grace of God. Faith, it was the active component of salvation. It's what, what brought about salvation, but you had to work in order to be saved. It was, you had faith, but your faith led you to do works. And the works are what saved you. And when they looked at Christ, Jesus was like way up there in heaven. And you couldn't talk to him. Instead, you had to talk to like a saint or talk to Mary and get them to do you a solid and to, to, to communicate with Jesus and to get your grace for you, to help you make it through the day. And finally, the glory of God was lacking because there, there, there were priests who were doing things like charging money for a mass. In other words, to have a service in order to experience the grace of God, you had to pay money. It would, it would be like, um, you know, if we believed that you were only saved if you had church service, you'd say, hey, Michael, I'm feeling a little unsaved today. I'm a little out of sorts. Here's 20 bucks. Can you do a service for me? Sure, let's do a service. You know, Lord, I lift your name on high. And then I'd preach you an hour-long sermon just for you. It'd be amazing. Who wants to sign up today? Um, they were charging for mass. They were fundraising using a thing called indulgences. And some of you, if you're from a Catholic background, maybe you've, you understand some of the things I'm, gonna, I'm talking about a little bit better. But indulgences was, was in order to be saved, in order to experience the fullness of your salvation, you had to receive the grace of God through the sacraments on a regular basis. And if you were especially bad, uh, maybe you needed to, to get over a sin that you had really slipped up. Or if you wanted to get someone you loved out of a place called purgatory. Many of us have heard of purgatory. Those of you from a Catholic background, you're more familiar with it. Purgatory is the place where people who didn't do enough good works go to suffer so that they're made pure so they can go to heaven. Well, you can get them out a little quicker by buying an indulgence, by, by spending 20 bucks. And, uh, you know, if your 20 bucks given in faith gets them out a little quicker... Uh, maybe instead of being there for 100 years, they only have to be there for 99 years, 11 months, and 15 days. Keep giving, though, and they'll be able to get out even sooner. And then there was this thing called simony, where people were actually paying for church positions. Nowadays, you'd be like, uh, who would do that? Like, who would come and say, listen, Michael, I really want to be a Sunday school teacher. I'll pay you $100 a week. I'd be all in on that deal. Let me tell you. Uh, I mean, I'd do it for 50 bucks a week. I'd let you be a Sunday school teacher for 50 bucks a week. I wouldn't send anybody to your class, but I'd let you be a teacher for 50 bucks a week. But there were, there were, there were people paying to be bishops and paying to be priests because it had authority. Because it wasn't about the glory of God. It was about the glory of the leadership. It was about the glory of people. And so there was this, just, the church was just in this state of the Pope had all the, all the, the, the authority scripture was subjugated to the, to the Pope and the church, that grace was something that you had to purchase or earn, that faith wasn't something that was, was uh, from within, but instead it was a work that you had to do in order to earn your salvation. Jesus was so far away that you had to talk to people in order to, to maybe curry favor with him. And there was never a, a certainty of salvation. And the church had slipped away into this, this man-centered life. And there's this one question that began to get asked more and more by certain people in the church. How can an unjust person survive the judgment of a holy God? 
Today, we would say it really simply, how can a person be saved? I mean, don't you guys want to know that? How, how can someone be saved? How can someone, once we understand that sin separates us from God and earns for us eternal death and the wrath of God, that's what we deserve. Once that happens and we understand that, how can we be saved from that? And the church in the 1500s was saying, well, if you do good works and you trust in the works of Christ, maybe you can be saved. In fact, the, 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 the way it, it, it laid out was something like this. You had to do good works and be a good person in order to, to be given the grace of God so that you could then express faith and then do more good works in hopes that you would be good enough to enter heaven. In hopes that, that you could know you were saved. But in anywhere in this process, if your works weren't enough, if you weren't a good enough person, there would be this nagging doubt about, am I really saved? And it was in this atmosphere that this monk with the sweet haircut, Martin Luther comes to bear. And he was, he was not an uneducated man. In fact, he was a doctor. He was a teacher, not a, a doctor of medicine, but a, a doctor of, of theology. He was a teacher in the, the, the college at Wittenberg. He was, he was a prominent Catholic teacher who was an Augustinian monk. And he saw this system and he saw the corruption in his church and he saw this doubt and this struggle. How am I ever supposed to do enough good to prove that I'm saved? How, how is it that, that you can buy the grace of God, but I can't trust in it in my daily life? Why do I have to keep doing these things over and over and over again to even begin to hope that I'm saved instead of having confidence in my salvation? He really struggled with that. And as he was reading through God's word, struggling with these questions of have I done enough? And am I good enough? And am I saved? That he came upon this verse. Romans chapter 1 verse 17. For in it, the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. Just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. And he read this statement, and it changed his life. As he pondered it, and he came to understand it, because he understood that the system that he lived in of trying to be good would never bring him to a place of peace with God. That he could never be good enough, he could never be right enough, he could never come to church often enough, or pray often enough. He actually had gone to Rome. There was a, in Rome, there's a stairwell and it's, it's supposed to be the stairs that Jesus went up on the day of his crucifixion. And Romans would, or uh, people in the Roman church, they would go there and they would climb up it on their knees and pray on every step in hopes that by following after the example of Christ and going up these stairs and suffering, that maybe they could be more certain of their salvation. And Martin Luther does this and, and he's still just as uncertain because he sees in his own heart and he knows that even when he does good, he is not good. And even when he does the right things and tries to earn the favor of God, that they're all things that he does out of a motivation to, to try and save himself. Not to glorify God and worship God. Now, many of us have, have probably been in similar situations. In fact, if you are a Christian today, I hope you've experienced that moment where you're like, am I saved? How do I please God? And that you came to scripture and you understood that you're righteous. You are made right with God because of faith. Not because of anything you do. Not because of anything you see in your own heart. But because of what Jesus has done on the cross for you. Here's what Martin Luther said. Is after pondering, this is how he recounted his experience with Romans 1.17. He says, Night and day I pondered until I saw the connection between the justice of God and the statement that the just shall live by his faith. Then I grasped that the justice of God is that righteousness by which through grace and sheer mercy God justifies us 
through faith. The word justifies means to be made right in relationship with. So God makes us right in relationship with himself by faith, through faith. Thereupon I felt myself to be reborn and to have gone through open doors into paradise. He finally understood I'm not good enough. I can't do enough. I will never be able to live up to what the church says I have to do to be saved. Instead, as I read scripture, I come to this understanding. I am made right with God, not by my good works, not by attending church or partaking of communion or being baptized. I am made right with God because I trust him. Because I turn my life over to him. Because I live by faith. And so this is what motivated Martin Luther to nail these complaints, these areas of discussion on the door of the church. Now, this was not some sort of vandalism. Actually, what this was is Martin Luther nailed these 95 theses on the door, or 95 statements on the door, on October 31st, 1517, of the Wittenberg Church in order to try and start a discussion. He wanted to see the Roman church come back to the Bible. He wanted to see the Roman church come back to the truth of salvation. And so he wasn't vandalizing the church. This was actually a common practice. The doors of the church were like a bulletin board. And when you wanted to start a discussion, you'd post something on the church doors. When you had a lost dog, I guess, you posted on the church doors, right? Because everybody goes in and out of the church. And so Reformation Day, October 31st, 1517, is the very first moment in which the Protestant Reformation begins. It is the, the, the day in which the change, the renewal of the church is birthed through this one monk with the sweet haircut. If you can't see it, it's, you know, it's that old monk-style haircut. And Augustinian monks, they had the... The halo thing, and then they shave the top of their head. That's pretty sweet. Maybe next week. Y'all would freak out if I showed up looking like that. Shelly among the Gucci. As we look back as 21st century believers, and we see all that these men stood for, these teachers advocated, this call back to faithfulness from a church that had fallen into a mindset of works and man-centeredness and essentially worshiping a man instead of the man, God incarnate, Christ Jesus. We can pick out five things that they focused on. And we call them the solas. And sola is... Latin. So if you know this word, you can say it sola, sola, Latin. You know Latin. You are so learned. You are astute. Oh, you speaker of Latin. These five solas, though, in Latin are sola scriptura, sola gratia, sola fide, solus Christus, and soli Deo gloria. And these five statements... They weren't really something that Martin Luther and those of his day walked around with as t-shirts. They didn't have signs, but instead these were the, the concepts that permeated their teaching. These were the things that they were calling the church back to. Things that would become the seeds out of which our faith has grown. And so these five concepts, as we spend the next 15 minutes or so, I wanted to take a few moments and look at each of them because this is an important day for us to understand that this is the day in which this rebirth of the church began. This focus upon scripture began. Sola Scriptura means scripture alone. And what it means is that scripture alone is our sufficient source for life and godliness. It is our final authority for all things pertaining to relationship with God and how to live in obedience toward Him. And, and what we mean by this is 
Oftentimes in the life of the church, we have relied upon someone else to tell us what God meant in his word. Like we'll open the Bible and we'll be like, that's confusing. That's not enough. I need somebody else to tell me what it says. And we go to other books and we go to other, other teachers and we say, what do you say the Bible says? And then we put them in a position of authority over both our own lives and the Bible. And the truth is, for every believer, the Bible is completely sufficient to give you every answer you need for every situation in life. Now, no, it doesn't tell you how to pay your power bill. No, it doesn't tell you how to fix your car. But the things that it does tell you, it's authoritative and it's right about. And you don't need anybody else's opinion. And you don't need a pope or a pastor to tell you how to interpret what it says. Instead, what you need to understand is it is sufficient in and of itself. When the Bible says something, no one else has the authority to either supersede it or negate it. The Bible is sufficient and authoritative in everything we need for life and godliness. Proverbs 35 and 6 says this, Every word of God is pure. He is a shield to those who take refuge of him, in him. Excuse me. Do not add to his words or he will rebuke you and you will be proved a liar. What the church in Martin Luther's day was doing was adding to his words. They were coming up with concepts like purgatory. It's not in scripture. Like the immaculate conception of Mary. Not in scripture. Like going to a saint and praying to them that they might give to you grace. Not in scripture. Adding doctrine upon doctrine that could be found nowhere in scripture. Adding to the words of God. Believing it was not sufficient. Now, that doesn't mean we don't preach, it doesn't mean we don't teach, but what it means is, is that when we come back and say, what's truth? It's never Michael's sermon. It's always what God's word said as expressed through the sermon. It's always what God's word has to say as expressed through the book that we're reading in Sunday school or small group. And any time that book or that preacher adds to or diminishes the authority of Scripture, they have violated this key concept of the Reformation. Revelation 22, 18 and 19. Many of us are familiar with it if we've read Revelation. It is simply, hey, here are the words of this book. If anyone adds to them, let them be the curses that are in here. If anyone takes away, kind of the same difference. Let them be cursed. In other words, don't add or take away from the Bible. Is what we take that verse as meaning. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Scripture is sufficient and authoritative. Sola Scriptura. Scripture alone. Not the teachings of man. Tradition is nice. It gives us cool things like hymns. But hymns are not authoritative. Tradition is not authoritative. Scripture is. So sola scriptura. The second, sola gratia, or grace alone. Grace alone. Salvation is a free gift of God. That's what grace is. Do you realize that grace means a free gift of God? And so when we're talking about our relationship with God, it is so important for us to understand it is not a gift if we earn it. If, if, it's, if you've earned it, that's wages. Bible tells us the only thing we can earn on our own is death. For the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God, the free gift of God, is salvation through Christ Jesus our Lord. 
So grace alone, salvation is a free gift of God, not earned in any manner. Romans 3, 23 and 24, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. They are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that it is in Christ. 2 Timothy 1, 9 says this, he has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works. God chose us, loves us, called us out to be his people, not because of our good works, but according to his own purpose and grace or free gift, which was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began. Other verses that support this. (laughs) Excuse me, that was a weird snort. Why did I snort? (laughs) I guess that's just weird. You know, just when you think you're doing a really good job, bam, you snort. Other verses, Romans 11, Ephesians 2, 5 and 8, 9. There's, oh, 2, 5 and 8 and 9 remind us that salvation is through grace alone. But it's not just grace alone. It is a free gift of God, but we must receive it. Sola fide, faith alone, is the means of receiving the salvation given through grace, not works. In other words, even if you say salvation is a free gift, but you must receive it by being a good person, that's wrong. That's a lie. It's not scriptural. Salvation is a free gift. Stop. It is received by trusting God in that gift and the giver of the gift. That's it. There's nothing you do. You can come to church every day for the rest of your life and you cannot earn salvation. You cannot be more saved. You can't receive your salvation by coming to church. You're not saved by baptism. You're not saved by communion. You're not saved by getting married, though some of us are better because we were. You are not saved by any of the spiritual things that we do as a church, those are all celebrations of our salvation. You are saved by grace because you believe that what God has given to you matters, that salvation through Jesus Christ. Romans 3.22, the righteousness of God is through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe since there is no distinction. Romans 5, 1 and 2. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have also obtained access through him by faith into this glory in which we stand. And we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. Many of us should already know this passage For you are saved by grace through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is God's gift. Not from works. So that no one can boast. Salvation by grace through faith is a gift from God. You cannot earn it. He does not save you because you're a good person. He does not call you to himself because you did the right things. Or he saw in you some glimmer of hope. Scripture tells us we were all dead in our sin when Jesus called us to be his own. And we are saved when we respond in faith. Romans 1.17, which Martin Luther grabbed a hold of, reminds us it is by faith. Romans 3.28 Four, six and four, four and five. It's a little small on the back screen, but I had to cram it all into one slide. Um, these, all of these things remind us that it is by faith, by grace, through faith that we are saved. We don't do anything to receive the grace of God. You can eat all the communion wafers you want and it doesn't make you more saved. You can pay all the money you have to the church and it will not save you. It is by faith in the work of Christ. 
And it is Christ alone, solus Christus, by which we are able to be saved. Christ alone is the source and mediator of mankind's salvation. Mediator. Anybody know what mediator means? He is the go-between. He is the one who stands between us and the Father and deals that relationship and makes peace between us and the Father. He is both the source of our salvation and the mediator of our salvation. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 5 and 6. For there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, a testimony at the proper time. Do you understand when you hear a verse like this, why it is frowned upon in most Protestant churches to wear the medallion of a saint and pray to them for help? It's because that person, as good as they may have been in their walk in this life, has nothing to offer you. In fact, I I got something that's going to be a little controversial. I'm going to tell you, the people that you love who are in heaven right now, they are not concerned with your life. They are not looking down on you going, Oh, get it right. Do it. ah, Hey, God, help him. Help her. That is not what they're doing. Do you know what they're doing right now? They are enjoying the presence of God. They couldn't care less about what's going on in this world. Because, do you know who is watching? Do you know who is asking for help from the Father on your behalf? Jesus. Grandma can't do nothing for you that Jesus can't do. Right? In fact, why would you want grandma to help if you've already got Jesus on your side? Man, it should should just be like, yeah! He's my mediator. He's the one that, that stands between me and God and he intercedes and he watches and he equips me and he empowers me and he wants to see me grow up to look like him. There's one God, one mediator between God and mankind, the man Jesus, or Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, a testimony at the proper time. John 6, 35 through 40, Jesus is talking to his uh, disciples and talking to others about being the bread of life. And, and here's what he says at the end of that passage. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in Him, will have eternal life, and I will raise Him up on the last day. Your mediator says, if you believe on me, you will have eternal life and resurrection. You don't need Saint whomever. You don't need Grandma. You've got Jesus. And He's promised to bring you to life now and give you life forevermore. First Peter chapter 2, Peter writes this. He says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that having died to sin, we might live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. You are brought to life by the work of the one man who is God incarnate, who died and rose again on your behalf, Jesus the Christ. You need no one else interceding for you or mediating for you when you have Jesus. 1 Corinthians 1, 1 John 3, 5, other passages that help support this. And the final thing that we see coming out of the Reformation is this concept of soli deo gloria. Everything For the glory of God alone. The first place we see this in written form is that at the end of every page of Bach's compositions. Johann Sebastian Bach wrote this at the bottom of every page 
of his compositions. Another composer who did the same, Handel. You know, he wrote the Messiah. SDG at the bottom of every page of their compositions to the glory of God alone. But this flowed from the heart of the reformers like Martin Luther and others like him because they understood that ultimately our lives and everything we are and do are about the glory of God alone. And we see this is so critical. Even in the life of Jesus, John chapter 12, verse 28, Jesus says this, Father, glorify your name. Jesus, amongst his greatest desires, was that the name of the Father would be glorified. Then a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. Everything was to the glory of the Father. John 13, 31 and 32, 14, 13, 15, 8, 17, 1 through 5, Jesus says over and over again in his teaching to the disciples and his high priestly prayer for the church, may you be glorified, Father. We do this to the glory of the Father. I pray this to the glory of the Father. I pray this that you might be saved and live a faithful life to the glory of the Father. And so the glory of God was at the heart of Jesus' teaching. It was at the heart of the Reformation. And it should be at the heart of who we are as Christians as well. So let's pull these things together. Because we've seen the church has had struggles all throughout its life. We've seen it split numerous times. We've seen it, you know, fracture even since the Protestant Reformation. There are over 130 Baptist denominations in the United States. Did you know that? It's because Baptists like to fight. We happen to be Baptist, so if you like to fight, welcome, right? You like to argue, hooray, you're home. We should be unified, but we're not. We struggle. But when we live by these five solas, we can find greater unity. We can find a foundation upon which to to struggle together joyfully. I want to encourage you on this Reformation Day, which, yes, is All Hallows' Eve, whatever. You'll get candy later, but now I want you to get a changed perspective on your faith. Because Scripture clearly teaches that a person is saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone. And so when we use Scripture as our foundation, sola scriptura, we come to an understanding that it is by grace alone, a free gift of God, sola gratia, that we, by faith, sola fide, and faith alone, not works, through Christ alone, solus Christus, that we can be saved from our sins, that we can have a certainty about eternity. And all of this is to God's glory alone. And so those questions that Martin Luther and others like him asked about salvation. Have I done enough to be saved? What's the answer? No. Am I good enough to be saved? No, you're not. You're not good enough to be saved. Look in your heart right now. You're not good enough to be saved. I'm not good enough to be saved. No one is good enough to be saved. Which is why Jesus had to come and give his life. So this final question, am I saved? By grace, through faith, in Christ, yes. To God be the glory. Not to me be the glory, not to the church be the glory, not to pastor whomever or prophet whatever, but to God and God alone be the glory. You are saved when you understand that you are a sinner separated from God because of the things that you've thought, said, and done in rebellion against him having earned for yourself death and wrath, but that God loved you so much that by grace, as a free gift, 
He sent his only begotten son, Jesus, who lived a perfect and sinless life and died on the cross as the sacrifice for your sin. He died in your place to take the wrath of God. He shed his blood to cleanse you from the guilt of sin. And by the glory of God, his righteousness becomes your robes. And you're able to put on the goodness of Jesus. And when God looks at you, he doesn't see who you used to be. He sees the goodness of Christ. And so this free gift you receive by faith only through Christ Jesus is to God's glory. And here's the really exciting part. The part that should be really comforting to us is that because salvation is a free gift of God that cannot be earned but only received, it means that it cannot be lost and he will not take it away. I want you to grasp that. Now, that that is not some get-out-of-everything-free card, live-however-I-want. But what it is, is it's a freeing thing to know. Martin Luther labored and fought and pondered to come to this realization. Nowadays, because of the work that he and others like him did in the Protestant Reformation, we have this truth given to us nearly every Sunday. Salvation is a free gift. It cannot be earned, only received. And because it is a free gift that can't be earned, you cannot lose it because God is the one who is caring for you and he will not take it away. The same way you did not earn your salvation by being a good person, you can't lose it by stumbling. The same way that the God who loves you and gave it to you as a gift, he will not rip it from you unexpectedly because (laughs) put it in there, fill in the blank in whatever way. But understand this, this salvation that is a free gift that cannot be earned and only received, cannot be lost and will never be taken away by the one who has given it, should always result in an increasing glory for God through the good works that we will do as a result of being saved. Does that make sense? You don't do the right thing in order to be saved. You strive to live to please God because he saved you freely. Did you deserve it? No. Do you deserve it now? No. Will you ever deserve it because you're good enough? No. But he freely gave his son who lived and died and rose again in your place so that by grace you could receive this free gift of salvation if you only believe on him as your Lord and Savior. And when you do that, and follow him in obedience, you should begin to do good works. Now, if you have been walking, playing the Christian life, and you've never really understood this, I want to challenge you to talk to somebody, to, to really get past the point of thinking you can be good enough and earn your salvation. And to begin to to talk to someone about what it means to really just believe and trust and turn over your life. If you have family members and friends who are still stuck, is the, the best word I can think of, in the lies that they have to earn their salvation or do good works to earn God's favor, I want to encourage you to have patience with them to love them, but continue to share with them this good news. Salvation is a free gift. You'll never be able to earn it, but he will freely give it when you believe. You can't lose it. It won't be taken away. And even more exciting, even more exciting, it is done. There is no purgatory There is no place where you got to go and get better in hopes that God will finally accept you. 
Jesus did everything you need to be saved completely if only you will believe on him. I could go on and just hammer that over and over and over and over again just, just until we all fell asleep because I feel like it's something you must, we must as Christians understand. If you looked in the mirror this morning and said, I, I don't like who I am. I'm not good enough. Do you know what God says to you? You're not. But I love you anyway. And I have saved you. And I have clothed you in the righteousness of Christ. And I know you're going to get better. Maybe not today. Maybe not tomorrow. But there will come a day where it will all be done when you see me face to face. Remember our four diamonds as you share the faith around you. We were created by a loving God with a purpose and also with expectations. But all of us have chosen to follow the example and have received the consequences of sin. Just like Adam and Eve, we've rebelled against God. We've chosen our own way. We've earned his wrath and we've earned death. But God loved us so much that he sent Jesus who lived and died the only begotten Son of God who was fully God and fully man, lived a perfect and sinless life, died as a sacrifice for our sins, and then rose again on the third day, which is why the tomb is empty, to prove he really is who he says he is, that he really can do what he says he can do, and that the gift really is free because he's already paid for it. And now it's time for all of us, with our hearts and minds, to choose. Will you choose Jesus today? as the worship team makes their way up this morning. If you need to talk to somebody, I'm always available, please grab me. If you need to find somebody else uh, and just ask them, hey, will you talk with me? Will you go with me to talk to Pastor Michael or one of the other elders? Do not let today end without being certain of where you stand with Jesus because you don't have to worry anymore. You don't have to fret you can be certain because of what Scripture has told us. One quick aside before we sing and close out. I wanted to say thank you for last Sunday. Thank you for the gift. Uh, for a communicator, a gift like a computer may seem weird or, or odd to you, but the tools that I use for preparation, for study, for presentation are all digital nowadays. And so a good tool is, is worth its weight in gold to me. So it, it's a beautiful thing. And I'm a nerd, so that makes it even more fun. But I also want to say thank you for, for appreciating the strengths that I have and being patient in my failings. Because as I look around, and I know that, that some of you maybe wish I could do things a little differently from time to time. Or I, I was better at this or better at that. Well, he's good at that, so we like him for that. But I wish he could. I understand. I wish I could too, oftentimes. So thank you for appreciating my strengths. And thank you for being patient in my failings and my shortcomings. I will continue to do my best to grow in Christ. And guess what? The longer we're together, the more opportunities for me to fail you in some small or big way. Please, if it hurts going to be like, what do you mean? I'm going to try and learn to grow. I want to look more like Jesus. I hope you do too. So thank you. And hopefully that's the stage we can set for all of us. We appreciate one another's strengths. And we show grace in one another's weaknesses. And look forward to each other growing. Because we know none of us deserve salvation. For everyone who believes it's a free
Jesus is our only hope. And we live this life, sola scriptura, sola gratia, sola fide, sola Christus, solus Christus, soli Deo Gloria. Scripture alone, grace alone, by faith alone, in Christ alone, to God's glory alone. Reformation Day reminds us to bring our lives back into order and to refocus on what Christ has done for us and how Scripture reveals it. I want to encourage you, if you have opportunity tonight, uh, to maybe grab a track off the uh, the little black, black table there and uh, maybe <clears throat> grab a bag of candy and just do like a track and treat for a couple of neighbors. Um, go, go share some cookies with a neighbor that you want to invite to church. Go share the gospel with a neighbor or two. I don't have enough for everybody to take a whole bunch, but if you were to pick one person that you want to share Jesus with tonight and just go to their door, knock, wear a costume if you want, and then track or treat and track that treat, give them a bag of candy and a, a, a gospel track and make an invitation to church available back at the desk and um, see what you can do on a night like this to bring about a life change that's only possible to a God like that. So God bless you guys. Have a great night. Be safe. Make good choices. Um, I was going to make a joke earlier about everybody needs to take off their mask, but that just seemed rude. And then... Um, We'll see you throughout the week in small groups and stuff, and then again next Sunday. Don't forget to bring coats, Operation Christmas Child. This is the season of giving and sacrifice. And so we're going to be asking you guys to step up and do some things. Please do as the God do as God plays on your heart. God bless you guys and have a